Welcome to The Coaching Podcast with your hosts, Emma Doyle and Simon Blair, coach for success in sport and business. G'day everybody and welcome to this special Australian Open episode on The Coaching Podcast. And I just wanted to mention how exciting the weekend of tennis was. First and foremost, I wanted to give a big shout out to my good friend, Betty Sikolowski, who's been working for many years with a player called Jamie Foolis. I also had the pleasure of working with Jamie for around a year and a half on her mindset. And it was just so great to see her and Jason Kubler break through all the way to the final of the mixed doubles. So being a Grand Slam finalist is such an amazing achievement and can quite often kickstart careers. Doing well in doubles then can really help your singles game. We saw that with the likes of Samantha Stoza and uh, certainly other players that are feeling those grand final feelings and the nerves and the tension and uh, can really help your singles game. So I, I love that about doubles. So just a big shout out, congrats. I was really, really um, proud of Jamie and her team. And Jason certainly had a number of his fair share of injuries over the years. So, so great to see them make the final. When I was younger, there's no doubt I used to hit against the wall thinking I was Yvonne Gulagong Corley and pretending, you know, sort of self-commentating on my own shots. And uh, I hope that Ash Barty does exactly that for young players, hitting against the wall, pretending they're Ash Barty, using her all-court game and the variety of skills that we saw was so awesome in the final against Danielle Collins. And uh, you'll hear in this episode, again, the US College Pathway is such an awesome way to give yourself a stepping stone onto the tour. So huge believer in the US College Pathway instead of turning pro straight away. So congrats to Ash Barty. It's been a long time coming that we've had a, a Women's Australian Open champion on home soil. So that was awesome. And an All-Australian men's doubles final as well. So, And of course, I couldn't think of a more deserving champion than Rafael Nadal. He really did show us the true meaning of humility, work ethic, and respect. Character traits that tennis reveals. And I think that's why I enjoyed the weekend of tennis so much. Just to see these traits in the likes of champions like Ash Barty and Rafael Nadal and Jamie Foulis. So congrats to these people who understand what it really means to be a great human and a great tennis player. It was a wonderful weekend of tennis and uh, a great fortnight. So just wanted to mention that to kickstart this episode. And what I love about Mike, he contacted me on Instagram and he is definitely what I would consider a young game changer. We love hearing from young coaches and the perspective of young coaches. Mike's had a great career as a hitting partner, so he provides some unique perspective from that angle with the likes of uh, Federer and Djokovic and uh, Berrettini 
as he's started his coaching career at the Soto Tennis Academy in Spain. So we hope you enjoy this episode. G'day everybody and welcome to the Coaching Podcast. My name's Emma Doyle. I'm here with Mike or Michael uh, Digby. Did I say that right, Digby? Yes, perfect. Oh, there you go. I was was going to put on my British accent, but then I... I realise it has been a little while since uh, since I've been back to the, the gorgeous UK, of course. Now you live in Spain, but we'll get to all that later. Listen, Mike, thanks for being on the show. We're going to jump straight into it. You are in Melbourne. I am a little jealous. I am. There's no denying. It's this beautiful summertime of year in January. The first question is the Vegemite question. You either love it, you strongly dislike it, or you haven't tried it. If you haven't tried it, I'm going to kill you because you're right in Melbourne. What's your <laughs> no, take? No, I have. I I have tried it and I actually tried it quite a few years ago because I had a I was in played college tennis and I had a, a girl that was an Aussie that came over and she used to get loads of it shipped over and, and obviously I'm a big Marmite fan. So we had a big old debacle around oh which one's nicer and I've gotta say I quite like it. Ah oh, nice. I do, yeah, I do quite like it. It's I don't know if it tops Marmite, the old British Marmite, but I'll yeah. I'll sing yeah. its praises every now and again. Oh, well, we don't get too many people that answer that way, so I mean, now I'm very impressed. What college did you play at? I played at Davenport University, Division Two school up in Michigan, so Michigan. a little bit different weather to, to Melbourne yeah. and Spain, that's to say the least. Yeah, I love Absolutely. I love so, you know, so how many options there are in college tennis, D1, D2, D3, oh. NAIA, I've learned so much about it, my partner does uh, US college scholarships for athletes around gotcha. the world. So I've had a whole new uh, appreciation for the different levels. So if anyone's out there listening, uh, looking for a US college scholarship, there's so many awesome opportunities, um, even in freezing 100%. cold Michigan. So um, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure some, you had a great time. There's some great schools. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can, there's so many opportunities. You know, there's, you know, I was very lucky to play a good Division Two school and, you know, we, I think a lot of people think that there's this perception around, oh, like if you don't go Division One, the level's really poor. And when actually there's a lot of really, really good players that go to high end Division Two because yeah. maybe the scholarship's a little bit more generous. Or, yeah. and oh, yeah, so I recommend it to anyone. Yeah, right there with you. All right. So because you you said you were a fan of Vegemite, therefore the follow up question is: we start with your best coaching moment. Yeah. So I think I mean I'm. I'm very grateful that I've I've had quite a lot of involvement at the higher end of the game as a hitting partner as well. So whether we whether that's more coaching, I'm not sure. But I think some one of the best moments for me, I guess, is more of a hitter, I guess, than 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 a coach. Was was when I first remember when I went to when I went to Wimbledon and um, I was there, and, and one of my first gigs was actually hit, hitting with Djokovic, which is a bit of the in topic at the moment for maybe different reasons. Yeah, and, and I always remember one of my big lessons over the last three, four years doing that and kind of, you know, acquiring a coaching role with some top juniors now and um, and being involved with those top players was always trying to look to shadow the, the coaches that were, you know, that were doing it. And I had a really good chance to spend some time with Marion Vider, who's coaching Djokovic. And I think one of my, my, my big takeaways and one of the best moments for me is this, just keeping things really simple. I think uh, so many coaches, you know, and I'm guilty of doing it as well, is 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 overcomplicating using this technical vocab or just trying to make things too complicated when in reality tennis is a really simple sport. And if we can keep it as simple as possible, 
and just use simple vocab, then often these players, it just sticks. And it's amazing how I find one common trait with really, really good coaches at all levels, not just at the pro level, at, at junior level, um, is just really simple, simple methods, simple instructions. And I think one of the best moments for me is when I remember we were doing like a cross-court drill, really basic drill with with Novak and, and Marion said something on the line for it, right, whenever you get this kind of ball, just go down the line. Whenever you get this kind of ball, just open up the court. And it was a really simple cue, really, like, really, really simple. And you think, well, this is world number one. He'd probably won 17, 18 grand slams at the time. He'd be thinking of, he'd be doing really technical, really difficult stuff when actually it was really simple. And I remember Novak responding and he, and he was like, this is great. Like, this is exactly what I needed. So I think from maybe from more of a bystander point of view, what, watching in from from me doing a lot of the hitting, and then allowing myself to learn from that point, you know, that kind of environment, that was probably one of my best moments from in a coaching environment. Maybe not me as a coach personally, but because I'm still very young. But it was just really interesting to hear those kind of coaches talk in that way. Nick Boletari said that. I said, what's your best piece of advice on the, the podcast? And he said, keep it simple. Yes. Yeah. 100%. So there's a lot of great coaches out there that, that subscribe to that philosophy. A great lesson for all of us. What about on the flip side? Can you think as a player, hitter, coach, what's your worst coaching moment and what were maybe some of the lessons? I remember, like I said, I'm now at the Soto Tennis Academy down in, in Soto Grande in Spain. I think my, I've always wanted to try and you know, test myself and, you know, as a young coach with some of the better players and, and see where I fit in, in, in that environment. And I remember um, one player, he was around three, four hundred in the world, a, ATP, and, and he did really well at Wimbledon one year in the doubles. And, you know, great guy, really good player. And, and the, one of the coaches there said, look, I'd like you to start doing a few few weeks with him. And I think as a young coach, maybe coming across a bit too eager and and I think my one of the biggest lessons that I learned is I just everything was just I was too much I said too many things I was too eager I was almost like being a little bit of a pest and I think one of the biggest moments and it hit me hard when when that coach said to me oh he's just he's not liking it it's too much it's this it's that and you kind of think oh okay and you look back and you reflect and you think yeah I was just it was crazy I was completely way too much there I didn't almost cater to what he wanted and he was I think one of the great thing about it is he was absolutely honest with me about it and I take feedback pretty well we had a sit down we had a chat and and you know it was all fine but I think that was a big like lesson learned for me to again I guess it kind of rely you know relays with the story I told you know previous was keeping it simple there's no need to to you know do anything drastic but that was definitely up there for probably one of the one of the difficult moments from, from my very young coaching career is... Uh, the third top response in our global research in what makes a great coach is actually someone who listens. So when we yes. really listen to our student, put our student in the centre, that is something that sings to my coaching philosophy and, and great to hear that's a, a great lesson everyone can you know always learn from, from that. Thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that one. Uh, the next yeah. one is the sliding doors question. I remember it was November 2019. And I'd just finished being a hitting partner, hitting partner at the ATP finals in London. And I did quite a lot with Federer, Medvedev and Sitsipas. And 
And I always kind of thought, oh, 2020, great, like it's going to be, and I want to continue doing the hitting part and stuff. And, and I was really, really enjoying it at the time. And, and I kind of thought, right, that's what I want to do. And I remember um, a guy called Matt James, who was and did a great job with Emma Raducanu when um, she was younger, up until relatively recently as well. Um, and he said to me, look, like I've got a really good coaching opportunity for you in, in Soda Grande in Spain. You know, you know, the director, Dan Kiernan's looking for looking for someone to, you know, kind of travel with the, the pros in more of a coaching capacity. And, and I kind of I wanted to dismiss it because I was a little bit, you know, my ego took over wanting to keep working with these top guys with the hitting and everything. And, and so I kind of thought, oh, you know, what? I'll go over, I'll speak to him, I'll, I'll see how it is, whatever. And I went over and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, and I think then you go a year later, all of a sudden I'm now working with the top, top junior, um, traveling with a guy that's 600 in the world ATP and more of a coaching capacity. And I think it could have been very easy for me to just continue with the hitting stuff. But then I think I slowly realized that I, as much as that's great and it's a great exposure to the top level of the game and it taught me a lot that I'd love to do that in a coaching capacity. And I think the earlier I started that as a coach, then you know, the more time I can give myself to, you know, gain that valuable experience and and try and work my way up the ladder. And I think I often reflect back and think it's it's amazing how my 20 year 2020 could have gone with COVID hitting, with not being able to do anything compared to actually how it did go. And I was very grateful that I could still coach and, and you know, Spain was relatively open. So I think that was you know, I look back now and I'm sitting here in Melbourne at the Australian Open as a coach, whereas I, you know, I could might not even be in tennis because the hitting part of the thing all dried up because of COVID. So, And it's sometimes just that one person who believes in you and supports you and he taps you on your shoulder and, and uh, yeah, that's, that's an awesome story. Uh, in one yeah. to a maximum of three words, what do you think makes a great coach? It's a really good question. I think we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier i think a good listener i i really like i'm a big believer in that and i think as a again it's my the lessons that i've learned in the last couple years coaching is as soon as you let your ego get in the way then the good listener becomes a bad listener and i think that's something that i've i've i'd say that i'm probably relatively good at but i've also had to work at it as well and i think you know when you work with with some very good players often as much as we as coaches want to have our input it's often their input that then teaches you how to mold the input you need to give so i think it's it's a big big area where if you can sit back listen and gauge how they're feeling you'll often really get like a true response um a true response as to how they're feeling whereas if you know like we said earlier if you're constantly a bit too eager and like trying to almost put that input and give that input without them really wanting it, it it backfires massively so i think a really strong listener someone that can you know can really kind of like take a step back and just go right how are they feeling and i think that leads me on to kind of the next thing is that my one question that i'll always ask after whether it's drills whether it's start of the morning whether it's at the end of the week whatever whatever the you know the scenario might be my my big question that i say to players is how are you feeling like how are you doing? Because we often lose that real human touch and human connection as when we're coaching an athlete. 
when in reality, like they're trying to do something, especially, you know, the top juniors and, and, and the pros that is, is abnormal. You know, it's not normal to be a top 100 tennis player. There's only a hundred of them in the world out of the 8 billion people. So constantly asking them how they're feeling and how they're doing is really important because that can gauge how the day goes, you know, because it might be a player comes into a session and, you know, we don't ask that question. They're feeling really bad, really frustrated, really annoyed about something and they have a poor session. Whereas if we go, right, how are you feeling? And they go, well, actually, you know what, Mike, I'm, I'm not good. I feel really bad, like frustrated, bad night's sleep, had an argument with parents, whatever it might be. So then my response would be, right, well, let's win the first 20 minutes of the session. If we can get a really strong 20 minutes out of this session, your day's already done. Great day. And then what that does is, is, is you then go, right, okay, now let's win the next 20 minutes. And now let's win the next. So then all of a sudden you've done a two-hour practice, which was amazing and really good. When two hours previous, you're down in the dumps, you're thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be it. So just asking that simple question of how you're feeling, I think, can change the course of someone's day and also someone's week. Fantastic. And it brought up uh, two things for me. One, when I interviewed Darren Cahill on the podcast, he said that, you know, tennis is a, is a mini two-game sprint, you know, yeah. you sprint for two games. I, I love that, win, win 20 minutes. And the other thing that I thought was interesting in what you said, which, which I love and I really explored a lot more halfway through my coaching career, uh, was to play around with uh, how are you feeling for, you know, very kinesthetic people, how are you what are you thinking for more auditory yes. digital people? And then, you know, what is it that you're seeing for this practice today or, or you know, tapping into the, to the visual? And then, of course, you know, what are you hearing as in what are you actually, what's that voice inside your head? What are you, what is some of those self comments right now? What are you, what are you listening to? So I think that's another good little tip for coaches as well to explore with those. 100%. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I completely agree. I think it's, we, the player gives you so much information. Mm. I think that's my my one of my big learnings. Is is it's great doing all these session plans and 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 all of that stuff, which is really important as a coach to make sure the planning and the preparations there, one hundred percent. But they will give you so much information through their body language, through what they're saying to you, through how they're thinking, through maybe the mood that they're in, and obviously that takes time to learn. You know mm. what a player's characteristics are, what traits they have, but if you can really like listen and just almost watch them and just see what they do, it will give you so much information that then can allow you to, you know, ultimately make some key changes mm. or then really like tap into the things that when they do something well, how do they feel? Like what body language do they give off? So yeah, it's, it's being a good listener is definitely, you mm. know, and, and a visual listener as well, like watching, watching them and, and watching mm. what they do is, is definitely important for me. And I, I remember when we first connected, um, when we were talking about getting you on the podcast, you, you spoke about quality over quantity, which is that race of 20 minutes. And, and 100%. Uh, also with quality over quantity, it reminded me of a story of a player I was working with where we just filmed her between points and looked at her body language between points about not only reading the energy of what she's giving off, we also then showed her footage of um, other players and the player that she played against her between point body language to compare the difference. And I think that just ties beautifully into all those great little 
gold nuggets that you, yeah. you just gave us. So yeah, um, 100%. We often use at the academy and also myself now is just take your hat off, see what you see over the other side of the net because I think there's so many players that become very internalised where they almost think, oh my God, like it's going really badly. I'm set down. I'm not playing great. I'm not finding the timing on my forehand, my backhand. When actually, if you take your hat off and see down the other end, they're doing the same thing. You'll then slowly realize that, okay, like let's try and play on that a little bit. Let's try and make them feel even more uncomfortable. So I think it goes to the same with, with, with players. I think often players, they need to listen to themselves and also, again, just, just take the hat off, have a look have a look over the other side of the court, see what, see how they're feeling. Because we often forget that tennis is tennis, uh, you know, a match is played by two players, you know, what they do, it can often influence what maybe you, you, you do. And then also what they're struggling with will influence how you want to play. And In this um, chat about ego, for whatever reason, it's the one area of sometimes tennis that concerns me when the ego just gets in the way and that's when they yeah. can't take the hat off that's when they can't see down the other end of the court because it's like I mean I worked with a guy out his mindset once and he said to me if he loses the first game like his first service game he always loses the first set because his ego about like my service yeah, yeah. is so big and like the the opinion of his own serve uh so anyway interesting but our, our final yeah. official question is where we ask you to ask us a question. Is Mike always curious to want to know more about? I always ask them at some point, and it's a question that I try and get, and it's like, if you were to turn back time when they were 23, 24, what three things, two things would they value as a coach? Or what would they tell themselves to do better now that they're 45, 50, 55. Because a lot of the coaches that I've been on court with are much older than me, more experienced. So it's like, what would you tell a 24-year-old you? So, you know, I think it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's my one because I'm always really curious as to where they were at my age and almost try and compare, think, right, what, what's their mindset like? What are they thinking? You know, what would they tell themselves? And And, and a lot of the answers are... There's no rush, you know, take your time, keep things simple, work hard. You know, the very, those basic answers, but I think they sit so true. I think they, they really do. It's just keep working hard, keeping yourself grounded. It's very similar, I think, to, to players at times. I think when you're a young coach, you've got to, you've got to have the balance between, between always being eager to learn and being, you know, because you have to be, you know, a young coach, we're too young to, to work to you know say we know everything because we don't so being really eager to learn being you know positive being good to be around I think a lot of a lot of players and I think the women especially like traveling with with younger coaches because I think you know you're good to be around you're positive you bring good energy uh let's go now uh to the Australian Open which is where you yeah. are my beautiful yeah. hometown of Melbourne I hope you're enjoying <laughs> the coffee uh 100%. tell me yeah, uh, tell me about the atmosphere just there at the moment with the pandemic and um, how how's security and things like that going? Well, it's just a strange one because I, I've been here around a week or so now. We actually played um, the W60 event in, in Turalgan, um last week. So we're now back in Melbourne and 
obviously the big thing right now is obviously the Djokovic thing that seems to be you know going around but with with the pandemic the cases are definitely rising um I guess I'm not that surprised because it's the Aussie summer I think Australia have, have opened up the borders a little bit to, to, to people coming in and out so I'm, I'm I'm not that surprised but at the same time there doesn't seem to be much panic I think it's just trying everyone's trying to stay safe and the big difference between last year and this year is the vaccine has been rolled out a lot. So I think that's protected a lot of a lot of players and a lot of a lot of coaches mm. like myself. So I think the severity maybe if you are vaccinated is, is a little less. I mean the one thing for me, the weather is 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 not great. I'm not gonna lie. It's it's very rainy right now. So um I'm hoping in the next few days that we start to see some sun. But yeah, the um, unpredictability of Melbourne, girl. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. what about thoughts on on-court coaching? Especially, I know you're working with a female junior. Yes. What yeah. what what are your thoughts on that? Uh, do you think that it happens anyway? Do you think it should be allowed, not allowed? What are your thoughts? I like it, and the only reason I'm not for it and I'm not against it, but I think if we go down the route of um, for entertainment value, I think that as a as a you know if I was a tennis fan and I'm watching, which I am, um, I quite like listening into the conversations. I think it gives you a really good insight as to maybe what the coach-player relationship is like and and you know what they're talking about. Again, just the general the feedback to each other. I think it brings good entertainment good value um i think you know the sport needs to you know we always trying to be more innovative trying to add different bits to the sport like we've seen with the tiebreak tens like we've seen with you know the fast four kind of format i think it's great from a pure kind of like player point of view with the combat involved and you know it being a one-on-one sport i think maybe then it devalues that a little bit because then a lot of people's argument would be that, okay, you feel like you're getting help. I personally think that if if a 30-second conversation sways a match that much, then I'm not sure whether I'd want to be in the sport. For me, it doesn't sway a match that much to have a conversation for 30 seconds with a player. Don't get me wrong, I think it can change the, it can change the, maybe the dynamic of how the player's thinking and what they're looking to do, which I think is, is good. But... I think ultimately, you know, they're they're potentially on court for three hours at times. And I think with a 30-second conversation, it's ultimately their job to try and implement what the coach has said. Yeah, I personally quite like it. Mm. Yeah, I wonder how it'll it'll play out, uh, the way that tennis is moving towards more entertainment. I think you're right. I think we'll see more of it. But I love the purity of the battle. Definitely. I'm a bit old school like that. I I love the problem-solving side of it. 100%. But, you know, there's no doubt every time I go to the, the Australian Open, I love going to qualies and last round of qualies. And, yeah. I mean, it's still, it's pretty rife, you know, the coaching that goes on. Yeah, I think it's, it, it, you can't, it's almost one of those ones where you can't really hide from it. I think it's, mm. it happens a lot. Um, and, yeah, it's as much as umpires do a brilliant job, you know, it's, it's impossible at times when they're dealing with players, the ball boys, the officials, the coaching boxes. Ball girls. It's so hard. Ball boys and ball girls. Ball, girls. ball boys <laughs> and ball girls. Sorry, I apologise. It's, you know, they have such a hard job. So you can see it coming in and happening a, a yeah. few a few times here and there. But, uh, yeah, 
yeah it's a difficult it's a really it's a really mm. interesting interesting topic because i think lots of people have different opinions on yeah. it yeah and you're working with uh an aussie girl in the juniors yes. and you're a young male coach how do you navigate that pathway of you know subtle gender difference between coaching high performance junior girls versus boys that's a really good question there's definite differences as to how you approach coaching maybe the the male the female boys the girls i think that's you know that's very you know prevalent but i think with one thing that i found and again i think it's from i can take it from from being on tour with the high performing women and then the high performing men is i think that again that going down the listener point of view i think girls want that person that they can trust and build that relationship with that you know, I think that's a really important part of coaching a female is being able to listen and, and, and for them to feel like that they really trust you. Mm. Whereas I would say that the boys are always searching for information. Um, I'd say they're searching for, you know, like, right, okay, if I hit this forehand here, what are your thoughts on when I look to go down the line? You know, okay, well, actually, I think that if you get this ball, have a think about going down the line there, for example, whereas the girls will be more Right. When I've gone cross court, when do I go down the line? They're looking for that security. So it's like, okay, well, when you are this far inside the court, that's when you go down the line. So it's, I guess it's the vocab that you give and how you word things are the big difference between maybe the boys and the girls. So I think if I was coaching, you know, a boy, it would be more information giving and letting them do what they like with that information. Whereas with the girls, I would try and come up with a bit more, you know, so with the girl that I'm coaching here in Australia, it's more, it's more like the, the real patterns, right? If you hit the ball here, I want you to try and go here. So they're really clear. So they have that real security within their game. So I'd say those are the, the major differences for me, from my, you know, limited experience uh, in coaching. And then also as hitting as well with, with analyzing what coaches are saying, it's the security over then the information. Mm. And what about uh, our friend Carl Mars? Uh, I know you had the opportunity to be on court with him. And what do you think are his three best coaching traits? Oh, it's a great question. So, yeah, Carl's now the performance director at Solo Tennis Academy um, and has been for, for a few months now. First and foremost, he's very reassuring, brings that quite calm and, and, and positive and confident personality where you almost when Carl's talking, you want to listen, you want to, you know, engage, you want to kind of, and I think that then is another big reason for me why he's been very, very successful with, with the women on the pro tour. I think it's that reassuring calm nature about him and that, but that with the shoulders back confident as well, that then brings that sense of security. Like I was talking about for me, when, when I've, you know, I've very lucky to work very closely with Carl um, and that's the one thing that I've taken from him. And I think, you know, when you, when you work with the female, the female, the women, I think it's having that about you, that reassurance, that calm, that, you know, kind of nature, I think plays a big part in building that relationship with, with, with the females. I think it's really, really important. Brilliant at what he does, as well as being a, a, a very, very good tennis coach. He's a brilliant performance director at the academy as well. So very lucky to be able to work alongside him. Mm. And what was it like uh, being a hitting partner to Roger Federer? I have to ask. Oh, yeah. Very, yeah. I mean, it's first and foremost, I was relatively young. Yeah, maybe 20, 1920, I think. Incredible. In incredible. It's, Were you nervous? 
Yes, I was. I mean, a funny story. I remember, so I was with him for 10 days, two weeks, roughly at the ATP finals. And I remember the first time that we practiced, it was actually at Queen's Club, which is the other side of London compared to the O2. So it's a good, in, in London, traffic is clock. Yeah, a good hour and a half to, to get over there. And so I remember getting, being driven over there and, and he was really late, really, really late, like 45 minutes, an hour late. So that didn't help at all with my nerves. And I'm sitting there on the court and there's people at, like at the Queen's Club indoors, they're all around the balcony at the top. And I remember just sitting there and every minute that went by, the more nervous, the more butterflies I'm getting. And I'm thinking, oh my God, like it's embarrassing. What if he doesn't show up? <laughs> And then he obviously walked through the door and, and within five minutes, because he's the nicest guy ever, uh, those nerves just went away. Just really, you know, he was asking how I was, where do I live? What am I doing? Am I playing? Am I coaching? All these questions, what football team do I support? And it just felt like it was, you know, just a friend, just having a chat with you and then obviously, you know, practicing at the same time. So it was, yeah, he was one of, the few I would say that have really settled my nerves very early on mm. when you, you know, cause we're not talking about you know, one of the greatest tennis players. It's one of the greatest athletes of all time. So it's, you know, it's a very nerve wracking experience, but one that I'll you know, cherish for the rest of my life. It was yeah. Incredible. Fantastic. And one thing that I'm really impressed with Mike is just the fact that you reached out and, said that you listened to the coaching podcast, but I, I love that you just reached out and, and then you said, you know, I'd love to be a guest, you know, on the, on the podcast. So what advice would you like to give to the other sort of young game changing coaches? Yeah, I think first and foremost, I think that's one of the big reasons why I wanted to come on. I think it's really important that young coaches, you know, get a good rep because I think sometimes they can be criticized at times there's no rush and I know it sounds ironic I'm saying that I'm sitting here at 24 years old you know there's you know I've been I've been very privileged to be able to work alongside some really really good coaches you know both at the academy and then also on tour and and I think the one common thing they say to me as a young coach is there's no rush you've got plenty of years ahead of you keep being really eager to learn um eager that's one thing that I've been you know very hot on is just learning for all parts of the game, the technical side, tactical, mental, um, and just really looking to try and hone your knowledge. But then also knowledge is great, but you've got to be able to build those connections with your athletes to then use the knowledge. And I think that's the one thing that I've really learned is just being myself. Don't try and be someone you're not. I think it's quite easy when you surround yourself with some really, really good coaches to try and almost copy them whereas i think it's important you take stuff that they do well and then mold it into your own way that fits your own personality um and use it so it's very organic for you so i think yeah being eager to learn no rush and and just trying to you know be as organic as possible as a young coach is really important wise wise words and i think no matter what age you are eager to learn it it's you know the minute that you stop learning is <laughs> the minute you should yeah. stop coaching. Absolutely. So, yeah. Uh, and, and finally, if I could just squeeze out one last question, would just be triggered one about social media. How do you help your players navigate the very challenging 
world of sharing, you know, a story or they want to post what they're doing on court versus dedicated, you know, that 20 minute focus quality versus, you know, how much do you want to like take the selfie? And I don't know, I thought that'd be a good question for your, your age bracket. Yeah, I don't know the answer. It's a really, it's a great question. I think a little bit of a story on that. I think uh, we have a, a podcast as well at the Academy called Control the Controllables. Um, and and we interviewed Jez Green, who was Andy Murray's um, Andy Murray's fitness coach, who at the time was working with Zverev. And he said one of the biggest differences between working with Murray, who was you know he worked with him for a number of years, from that generation compared to Zverev, who's my generation, was you almost have to change the way you you coach in a way because he's Zverev could be up till 2, 3 a.m. on his phone playing video games, whereas Andy would be in bed by 10, 11 because in that generation, it just wasn't really, when he was younger, it wasn't really a thing. So it's challenging for me personally because I'm from that generation being a coach, but also for me to manage that with my athletes. So I think in regards to managing it with my athletes, I try and I try and say to them, right, once the practice is finished, a match is finished, there's no phone until you've stretched, you've debriefed with me or the coach you're with, and you're in a headspace to then switch off and then kind of lead, you know, go into your off-court life and then, okay, cool, you can look at your phone, whatever. For me, again, I think it's important to to not be on my phone on the court at any point, even if I want to film, okay, I'll, I'll ask, look, I'm going to film something now. You know, if I, they say they're okay with that, that's fine. So just trying to kind of, not rely on the phone, which is really hard nowadays because technology is now a big part in, in the tennis world. You know, it's huge. Um, it's, it's massive. You know, we say that as we do a podcast. So it's, 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 you know, it's a big, a big, big part of actually player development. You know, I've got a good friend called Mike James, who's the analyst um, on, on tour. And if it wasn't for technology, his job would be really hard. So I think, yeah, the, the phone, laptops, all of that stuff. I think it's just about managing it day to day and making sure that myself and you know the players get some downtime and some time to do that because that's part of life nowadays. But then not allow it to take over mm. would be my would be my big thing. Mm. And almost, I I like the concept of sort of treating it like a hobby. You know, yes, social media time now, but you know you have to. I mean, it, even some people might cringe me saying that, but I. I think if if you don't embrace it, then you you yeah you you have 100%. to find a way to find a way to work with it. Uh, wise 100%. words from a very young coach who's coming up through the ranks. Uh, we can't wait to follow your career and uh, really loved everything that you had to say and and thank you so much for reaching out and please give Melbourne a big hug for me. I'm sure it'll warm <laughs> up. Believe in Absolutely. believe in it. Uh, four seasons in one day. It's a true story. And uh, yeah, um, all the best for the Aussie Open to you and your players. Thank you so much for having me on. It was great. And today's episode on the Coaching Podcast was sponsored by Transition Coach for Athletes, helping student athletes from all over the world find US college scholarships. You heard on the Coaching Podcast today that the US College Pathway is an excellent stepping stone to playing on the tour. For more information, check out www transitioncoachforathletes.com that's the number four the coaching podcast was brought to you by emma doyle and simon blair 